I always love the conversations that are happening, you know, in between um, our worship through song and our worship through the word. And um, Jared came up and asked, um, not how are you doing? How was your week? But like, explain to me again, like Gnosticism and how you would differentiate Gnosticism from special revelation and general revelation. That was the question today. And so, um, and I was like, what a fantastic question. And so we were talking about private revelations. You know, special revelation would be some a revelation that God has spoken, uh, not a, my own personal private revelation. So I was going to begin today by saying, I have a word from the Lord today. <laughs> and my word from the Lord today is John 6. I'm going to read it. If somebody says they have a word from the Lord and it's not followed by scripture, then, you know, red flags there. Um, so our scripture passage today is going to be John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. John 6, verses 1 through 21. And uh, as we've done, uh, you know, on a couple of occasions before, let's stand together as, as we read. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There were, uh, there, now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. 
This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we do thank you that you speak to us in your word. And now here in these next few moments, uh, may you teach us some lessons here about the identity of your son, Jesus Christ. And may our reflections here in the next few moments prepare our hearts for receiving the meal that Jesus gives to us, his followers, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so we ask you to speak to us, and it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may have your seat. Just a reminder here of John's purpose in his gospel. John explains at the end of his gospel his purpose for writing. John is the fourth of the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament. It's probably the latest of the Gospels written. And he includes uh, some of the material that you see in the first three Gospels, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, uh, because they're very much alike. They're they're telling a very similar story. Synoptic means to kind of view them together. It's kind of three different views on the uh, the life of Jesus Christ. John's is a little bit different. It's not one of the Synoptic Gospels because it... Uh, He has greater emphases than you see in the Synoptic Gospels. And John tells us his purpose for writing these Gospels, to supplement, if you could say it that way, what we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he says this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. I want you to notice the word signs there. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, or excuse me, John writes this gospel to give proofs clear definitive proofs of the identity of Jesus. And he does this by showing several signs. We saw that word there in John's purpose statement. And we've seen this a couple of places already in John's gospel. He has, uh, I think, um, some debate here on how many, but uh, eight signs that John points to showing us the identity of Jesus in his gospel. And we've seen a couple of these, and each one, by the way, is followed by, um, not each one, sometimes he has two signs together, and then it's followed by a longer discourse, uh, which you don't see very often in the Synoptic Gospels, but in John, you have long blocks of his teaching. If you look and you have a red letter Bible, you can see large sections uh, of John that are in red letters because there's long discourses and teachings of Jesus. Here's a couple of the signs we've seen thus far. John chapter 2, we saw his first sign was the wedding at Cana when he turned the water into wine. When they had, the guests had, uh, or the the hosts of the wedding had run out of wine and Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and um, he turns the six large Jewish jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. He turns that into wine. And then in verse 11, at the end of this, uh, this first miracle that Jesus does, 
John says this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Catch some of the John's thesis statement there. Some signs showing his identity and it generates belief or trust in him. And this is followed by can say his discourse in John chapter 3 about being born again. The second sign is the healing of the royal official's son we saw in chapter 4. John heals the royal official's son, and then at the very end of that uh, account, verse 54, the last verse of John chapter 4, it says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And then this is uh, followed by the story of the paralytic, the healing of the paralytic at the pool in John chapter 5, which is the third sign that Jesus had done, and this is followed by a longer discourse. And now today we're going to look at the fourth and the fifth signs that Jesus gave. And then this is also followed by a longer discourse or teaching. If you look at the rest of chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, all the way through, 70, um, through 71, you have most of that is filled up with a large teaching of Jesus in his, um, uh, and we're going to look at that, Lord willing, next week. So today we're going to be looking at the, the setup for that longer discourse that we'll look at next week with these two signs, these two miraculous signs, and that is the feeding of the 5,000, and I should say that's the feeding of the 5,000 men, as it says in this passage we read, and in uh, Matthew's gospel, that it's, that's just counting the, the men not counting the women or the children that would be there, could be 10,000, 15,000, maybe even up to 20,000 people were in this crowd for this miracle, uh, this fourth sign that Jesus does. And then this is followed by uh, immediately the fifth sign, which is walking on the water. So what I want to do is look at these two events, go through these passages, point out a couple of things, and then have four lessons for us to gather on this uh, this Palm Sunday. Notice the setting uh, of this in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've got a picture of Israel, you've got Jerusalem down in the south, you have the region of the Galilee up in north, and you have the Sea of Galilee. And then if you were to kind of draw a squiggly line, uh, that's the Jordan River that connects the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea, which is just on the east side of Jerusalem. We are back up into the region where Jesus conducted much of his ministry, and that's at the Sea of uh, Galilee. I had the chance to, to be there a couple of times, uh, and it's a pretty amazing place. I, had to, I told Janet, if I could live anywhere in the world, I would live on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's uh, amazing. It's a beautiful place over there. Now, much of the life of, uh, around the Sea of Galilee was on the north and then all the way around the south. A lot of the Jews lived on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, that's mentioned here, is on the north. Um, Bethsaida is up there. Cana is a little further away from the, the sea. But Chorazin, a lot of these are, are 
towns right along the Sea of Galilee. And then there was a big Roman uh, city called Tiberias, which is why it has two names here. It says it's the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is the Sea of Tiberias, Tiberias being the name of the emperor, and the city was named after that emperor, and so there's a big Roman city. All of this is on the north and on the west side. So when it says the other side, it means the east side of the Sea of Galilee. A couple things to note about the Sea of Galilee, if you could kind of picture this. It's about seven miles wide at its widest point and 13 miles long from north to south. So seven miles wide, 13 miles long, and it's a very deep waters. It's surrounded by hills and mountains. As a matter of fact, the surface of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, which is what caused it to generate quite a bit of storms, as you'd have the, uh, the evening air would blow across and the, the conflict between the warm uh, and uh, cold, moist air would create a lot of storms along the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus' reputation is growing at this point because of the signs that he had done. Like it says in verse 2, there was a large crowd following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so he went up on the mountain. doesn't tell you the name of the mountain, um, but it would be probably uh, there, was a, there was a kind of a prominent peak on the east side. Um, they called it Hippos when, when I was there, which is the name for a horse because they said, oh, if you look at it, it kind of looks like a horse head. Uh, and so it's probably that mountain is where Jesus was. And so he went up on this mountain. He's sitting down with his disciples. And then John adds this little note to give a little time reference here. We know that this is the spring because of a couple of, um, couple of time references here. Notice it says, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Passover is that uh, event that marks the first exodus of God's people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, 13, and 14. And so the Passover, the 10th plague, and the putting of the blood on the doorposts and the lentil of the house. And as the, the Lord passed over the houses of the Jews that had that on there, they were protected from the death of the firstborn sons. So this is Passover. This is what we're going to be celebrating on this Good Friday because on Good Friday, the, the Friday before Jesus was crucified, or the Friday Jesus was crucified, he celebrated this meal, the Lord's Supper, and this was a, this was a Passover. It was clearly to, to indicate that this was uh, replacing this historic Jewish meal of the Passover, which is always in April and May, so that, or May, uh, March and April. So we know it was in the springtime. A couple of other clues. Verse 10 it says, as Jesus had the crowds of people sitting down, it says there was much grass in that area. Um, I'd been there in the summertime, June, um, May, June, and by then it's already hot and has burned all the grass. It's totally yellow all around there. Um, but the rainy season, February, January, February, March, would enable the grass to be nice and gray. So we know, or green, so we, uh, gray is Michigan grass now, right? <laughs> it was nice and green grass. So that's in verse uh, 10. Uh, there's also the reference to barley, which is the first crop that came up, the barley loaves. Um, the wheat crop would not have quite happened yet. So the mention of the barley loaves specifically is interesting because it suggests that the barley uh, harvest had already started to take place, uh, but the wheat harvest has yet to come. 
And then, as I mentioned, that this is uh, connected to Passover. And so it's in the middle of this context that you have uh, Jesus going away with his disciples, and the large crowd of people was coming to uh, toward them on the other side of the lake. So they are by foot traveling around this lake, hiking several miles to get to the other side of the lake so that they could be where Jesus is. And Jesus then says to Philip, he kind of tests his disciples right here. He says, where do we buy the bread so all these people could eat? Verse 6, he says, he said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. And then you have Philip's response, which is a little pessimistic. He says, 200 denarii. Now, one denarii would be uh, the average day laborer's wage. So think of this as 200 days worth of wages. So that would translate to what? Over $30,000 in American dollars today. He says, even if we had 30,000 American dollars today, we would not be able to feed just even if you gave them a snack. So that was Philip's really pessimistic answer. Uh, Andrew steps forward, Simon Peter's brother, and he says in, in verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, you know, you got to give Andrew credit. He's at least kind of saying, well, we do have some food. <laughs> you know, there's some food here. Uh, five barley loaves, two, two uh, fish, but that's, that wouldn't even make a dent in the hunger for all these people. But that was enough for Jesus to conduct this miracle and to demonstrate his compassion and his giving to all of these people. So he says, have them, have them sit down. And he sits them down in uh, all 5,000 men. And then Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed those who were seated. So also the fish. And I want you to catch this. As much as they wanted. Okay. There was no rationing. It wasn't like when, when the mirrors go camping. I'm very, I'm very strict with portion sizes. You know, my family wants to bring totes and totes of food, and we take totes and totes of food back, and I'm like, no, 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 when we're camping, this is what you get each day. It wasn't like that. There was plenty to go around. They could eat as much as they wanted. And then I want you to notice as well, verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, these people had eaten as much as they could want and had all the food that they could, uh, could handle. And so much so to demonstrate this, the greatness of the miracle, they, Jesus has them gather all the leftovers and it's an overabundance of provision here. And this is where we know it's the fourth sign, verse 14. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. The second incident, or the second miracle here, the, the fifth sign is Jesus walking on the water. And I should point out, too, that they, this, uh, this feeding of the 5,000 is such an important miracle that it's actually recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the only one, apart from the crucifixion and the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that occurs in all four Gospels. The resurrection of Jesus and this feeding of the 5,000. 
And in Matthew and Mark and in John, all of the feeding of the 5,000s are followed by Jesus' walking on the water. Luke doesn't include it for some reason. But these two events uh, were clearly together. So here's the second event, verse 16. And when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, again, picture they're several miles away now. They're on the uh, eastern side, southeastern side of this lake that's uh, that's 13 miles long. So they're probably seven, eight miles away from their destination at Capernaum on the north west side and it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them the sea became rough because the strong wind was blowing and when they had rowed it's interesting it says that they rowed because it's likely they we would think with a storm and the wind they actually were in a very very stiff headwind and which is why they were not uh, sailing in that direction they were resorting to rowing in that direction it says when they were about three or four miles so they're halfway across this lake they're at its deepest part and they're frightened because this storm is so significant and that is when jesus comes to them on the water and he says it is i do not be afraid and then they took him into the boat immediately Let me give a couple of lessons for us. There's much we could talk about. There's a lot of lessons that we could look at in this passage. Uh, One is the compassion of Jesus to look across um, a crowd of followers numbering in the tens of thousands, perhaps, and seeing them hungry and then meeting their needs. We could speak about the compassion of Jesus. We could speak about lessons that this might have for for ministering to others that jesus employs these disciples to do this he has them get into groups sitting in groups of 50 the other gospels tell us so that there's an organization to it jesus breaks the bread and gives it to the disciples and then they go and the miracle is is happening as the disciples are involved in distributing it and what lessons that has for ministry is that no matter what we may offer with our hands it's the lord who actually conducts the ministry there's many lessons like that we can see in this passage but i want to focus on four lessons that that speak specifically to jesus's identity here and here's the first lesson Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You, that's the response that the crowd has. That's the response that the disciples have when they see this miracle. The other Gospels uh, tell us that they start to worship Jesus. So Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And then related to this is the second one is Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Notice what it says in verses 14 and 15. That when the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, if you notice your footnote uh, there, um, if you, no, it's not listed on my foot, footnote here. Verse, um, it says, mentions chapter 1, verses 21, and chapter 7, verse 40. If you go to those two passages, you might see a reference here to Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
We're in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Um, the, Moses has a message for all of the people of Israel. It's his final farewell sermon that he's giving to them as they're about ready to cross into the land that the Lord had promised them. The Lord had brought them out of their slavery in Egypt, like we mentioned in Passover. They're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of the one generation's disobedience. And now they're about ready to go in. Moses himself is prohibited from going in. And so he has this farewell message. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says something very interesting. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses is saying, I'm not, I'm not going into the land here, but the Lord has promised that he is going to send a prophet, singular, which is interesting because the Lord had actually sent many prophets throughout Israel's history after Moses. So this creates a, an interesting conversation, especially in a lot of the, uh, the Jewish teachers would say, who is this prophet? And they, they recognize this is actually a messianic reference. In later passages like Isaiah, when it speaks about the anointed servant of the Lord who is going to come, they go back and start reading some of the earlier writings and they're saying, you know what, there's some clues and hints to this Messiah, this anointed figure, and this must have been who this prophet was that Moses uh, was talking about. Notice it continues in verse 16. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when he said, let me not hear again of the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. It's interesting. So this became a, a messianic verse. This prophet like Moses. Who's going to be this prophet like Moses? So as Jesus does this miraculous feeding of this 5,000 men, 10,000 or more people, the people recognize, no matter what their motives are, they may have very selfish motives for, for just for food at this point, but they recognize this miracle is of such magnitude and is such a scale and such a scope and has been seen by so many people that they recognize who, who Jesus is here. They said, this is the prophet. Notice the ESV has a capitalized P. The prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the prophet Moses. Indeed, he is the prophet who's going to come and speak God's words. And that's the subject matter of the previous verses, right? Jesus said in chapter 5, I come to do what the Father told me to do. I come to say what the Father told me to say. And this is followed up by the crowd here recognizing this indeed is the prophet. So Jesus is greater than Moses. And number three, Jesus can do 
And I should say what only the Lord can do. Jesus can do what only the Lord can do. Where do I get this? This comes at the end of Jesus walking on the water. Verse 20, as the disciples are in the boat, struggling in the winds, terrified of what's going to happen, which is a significant statement given that these disciples, many of them, their occupation involved being on that water. It's hard to imagine that this, uh, a storm that was going to frighten such experienced fishermen, such as the severity of this storm, storm, however, that they're frightened at the end of verse 19. But as Jesus comes out and they see Jesus walking on the water and they're terrified because they think it's a ghost, as it says in one of the other gospels, Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Easy to miss this right here when he says, it is I. He's, he's saying, I am. I am. I don't know why the ESV kind of translated it this way. It's the exact same that we see many times in John's gospel when he says, I am the bread. Or I am the living water. Or just as he says one time in a couple of chapters from now, he just says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This is a refrain you see throughout John's gospel, and it becomes quite clear. Uh, Jesus' opponents knew what he meant when he said these things. When he's saying, I am, he is saying, I am the Lord. When Jesus says these words, I am, it immediately calls to mind Moses and his encounter with the Lord at the burning bush. Moses sees the burning bush. It's a strange sight. It's not burning up. And he goes and he hears a voice coming out of the bush. Moses, Moses. The Lord instructs him, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he tells him, you're going to deliver my people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And then Moses asks, okay, um, okay, burning bush deity, who... who who shall I say sent me? And at this, he says, I am who I am. Tell him, I am sent you. When you see that all capital Lord in the Old Testament, that means I am. So Jesus says, I am. Do not be terrified. That's one hint here, verse 20, but it's not just what Jesus says, but look at what he does in verse 21. It's he, he, uh, they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going elsewhere. It says then the, the sea was, was calmed, but here in John's gospel, it says something very interesting that immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. They're out in the middle of the lake, struggling through the storm. They see Jesus Jesus says, I am. They welcome into the boat, and then all of a sudden, they're there. And I saw this. A, a, a commentator had pointed out this reference. Turn with me to, to Psalm chapter, uh, Psalms 107. Psalm 107. Verse 
And Psalm 107 it has kind of several, um, several verses to this song. Speaking about an event of, in Israel's history and how um, the people find themselves in a great deal of difficulty. Sometimes it's because of their own wrongdoing. And then it says they cried to the Lord in their distress and their trouble and he delivered them. And then it speaks about how the Lord delivered them. Notice you see it beginning verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And then he led them in a straight way. And then there's a call to thank and praise at the end. Notice a similar pattern. Verses 10 and 11 uh, and 12, a little bit of trouble. Verse 13, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Then it explains what he does and then it says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Similarly, 17 and 18, trouble that they're in. Verse 19, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. And then it shows what he does to deliver them. In verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. But I want to notice the fourth verse of this song here in verse 23 some went down to the sh to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters they saw the deeds of the lord his wondrous works in the deep for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea they mounted up to heaven that is the waves they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Or in the Hebrew there, it says in the footnote, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. Finds similar to the, the, the plight of our disciples, isn't it? Do our experienced fishermen, experienced seafaring men on the Sea of Galilee, and yet all of their wisdom and experience in navigating the Sea of Galilee was swallowed up by these significant waves. Then verse 28, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he, and he brought them to their desired haven. Then let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Here's a, there, in the Psalms here is a depiction of what only the Lord God could do, what only Yahweh could do. As a matter of fact, it says, verse 24, it mentions the Lord by name. And the sea is not just an atmospheric troubles that would storm the sea, that here the depiction is that even the Lord caused the sea to cause these massive waves. And these people who went to go do business on these great waters found themselves in a extreme trouble and distress, and the Lord delivered them from their distress. And then notice that verse, and he brought them to their desired haven. 
I just, I read that and I think, wow, that's very similar to, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. He brought them to their desired haven. So not only is Jesus greater than the prophet Moses, Jesus does what only Yahweh can do. In the Old Testament, only the Lord God has the sovereign power over all of creation to calm the winds and the waves and to lead them to their shore. This is why they praise. Um, John doesn't mention this, but the other gospel writers in this account, they say they worshipped him. Worship was reserved for the Lord God alone. They were putting this together. So the Lord Jesus what does what only Yahweh can do. And then here's a fourth lesson for us on our identity of uh, who Jesus is. This will be our last one. Jesus brings a greater and better exodus. All throughout this chapter, you, you've caught, hopefully you've caught a little bit of this theme. He mentions the Passover in verse 4, that the Passover is at hand. And you thematically have a couple of things that are similar to the larger story of the people of Israel's most significant event, their exodus out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness and they're being brought to the, the land of promise and their turbulent crossing, if you could say it that way, crossing of the sea. All of those things kind of come together in these two stories where uh, all the gospel writers, except for Luke, who doesn't have the second one, all of them include these two stories together kind of as one, one big picture. And it's supposed to have us recall a little bit of Israel's exodus. Remember, verse 4, the Passover is at hand. The Passover was the beginning of the exodus. You have Jesus walking on the water, which figuratively speaking, the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea as if they were on dry ground. The Lord Jesus walks on the water as if it was dry ground. And then you have this provision of food, miraculous provision of food for all of these people. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 16. In the heading of my Bible, it says, bread from heaven. So as they're wandering through the wilderness, they've just recently come out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. The Lord had caused the sea to crash in on Pharaoh's army and drown them. You have um, the song Miriam's uh, or the song of Moses in, in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, you immediately have this provision of bread. Notice what it says in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then he gives some instructions about what to do on the sixth day so that they don't violate the Sabbath by collecting some that day. They were to gather double. And then notice there's a refrain throughout all of this chapter. 
Um, notice verse 8. And in the morning, when you gather the grant, gather it to the full. Verse 12. I've heard the grumbling of my people Israel. Say to them, at, twi at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Notice verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. Verse 18, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, but whoever gathered little has no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So here you have many parallels to this exodus because you saw that Jesus' provision of this food for all of these people, they recognized that he was the prophet and they, because of this miraculous thing that he had done, and they connected this with this miraculous provision. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes on to say, he is the bread of life. He is the bread of heaven. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. This is why they recognized him immediately as the prophet is because this is like another exodus. So much so, look at what they do in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come this is Jesus perceiving that they were about to come, all of this people, and take him by force to make him king. They, maybe Jesus is that Messiah. But Jesus knows that's not his time. Jesus brings here, I think, a, a better exodus. As a matter of fact, Luke's gospel speaks... Uh, has Jesus mentioning and talking about his departure. And, and the Greek word there is exodus. His departure is connected. What Jesus is, is going to do with who he is, his identity, and what he's about to do is a better exodus than the most watershed moment in Israel's history. Israel was in bondage in Egypt. But Jesus' exodus involves not a bondage of enslavement uh, under Pharaoh. It's in a bondage of enslavement to sin. In the original exodus, you have this journey. There's a crossing of the sea and then the receiving of the bread from heaven. But Jesus' exodus pictured here likewise includes a journey. There's a crossing of a sea as if on dry ground, except this is by Jesus on the sea. And then Jesus' provision of bread from heaven, raining down bread from heaven in much abundance. In the exodus, you have the people of Israel brought to the land of promise, with Jesus' exodus, you have his people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language brought to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus brings a better exodus. And next week, we'll look at Jesus' explanation that he is, in fact, that bread. The Lord Jesus also provided 
another meal for us. He did this miraculous meal for all of these people in the wilderness. But at the end of his Gospels, on the night before he was crucified, he provided a meal for his followers. Which is connected to that Passover meal. And he breaks the bread and he tells them that this is my body. And he takes the cup and he says, and this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Friends, we're going to take these together to close our worship this morning. And so I want to pray. And if you can, if you take these next few moments to just ready your heart to receive this meal that Jesus gave us as this memorial for his sacrifice, but it's also a means of grace for us. It reminds us of the gospel and it nourishes us with it. So let's pray together and then let's take, let's come to the Lord's table together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for these stories that you've recorded for us, this most significant miracle. And what it reveals to us about your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the same way that the Lord had provided miraculous bread from heaven to feed all of these um, we recognize that he has provided this meal. It's not just a, a physical meal, but is true spiritual significance in our lives. And so we prepare our hearts. We receive this meal with gratitude and thanksgiving, knowing what it conveys to us. The death of your son, Jesus Christ, for our forgiveness and the miracle of his resurrection for us to walk in newness of life. And so we give you thanks for it. And it is in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand together?